it's not theopoetics is better than theology proper. That's not our position. It's that there's a way and a how of religious reflection that gives more attention to body, that gives more attention to style, to genre, to, to, to medium. And that when more attention and possibility is considered when you're doing your theological work, um, good and good on you. There's still a place for Germanic prose, absolutely. However, when it's claimed to be the only site of legitimate religious reflection, that's when we've got issues. You're listening to the first episode of the Theopoetics podcast. I'm your host, Tim Burnett, and my conversation today is with scholars Lakeisha Lockhart and Khaled Keith Perry. Keisha is the president of ARC, a creative collaborative for Theopoetics, as well as the assistant professor of practical theology and director of Stream Youth Theology Institute at Virginia Union University. Khaled is the executive director of ARC, as well as the author of a book entitled Way to Water, a Theopoetics Primer. Both of these scholar activists and conspirers for all things beautiful bring their unique perspectives to bear in our conversation today as we introduce the topic of Theopoetics, as well as reflect on how the lenses of aesthetics, experience, and embodiment can inform the theological task for today. For more information about our sponsors, ARC, visit artsreligionculture.org. Thanks for listening. So I just wanted to start by asking you both, uh, what is theopoetics? How, how do we define that? Uh, for some people, when they hear that word, they're not quite sure what it means. They, they probably think it has some, something to do with both theo- theology and poetry. Mm-hmm. And so for you, what, do you, what do you mean when you talk about theopoetics? Can I, can I put a preface on that before I answer? So you know, we, in the ARC world, which is our, the organization that we're both part of, we have a particular answer to that question. And it's pretty inflected by the um, Latin American liberation stream of it, which is tied to a guy named Ruben Alves, who is a, a Brazilian thinker. Now, we have an answer, and we'll give that to you, but it's important to say there's other ways of thinking about this. So there are much more metaphysical, uh, process, relational uh, philosophical ways of talking about it. There are people who talk about it from a kind of like um, theology and literature perspective. Uh, there are uh, the kind of um, early versions of it are really uh, biblically based. It's about how you read the Bible and the way the lenses you've got to think about scripture. So there are a number of streams and um that's well and good. There's all sorts of reasons why there should be many streams. Um, but ours is a, is a pretty liberation-y version of it. I think that's safe to say, Keisha. <laughs> I know. I, I think that's pretty safe. Uh, yeah. No, it's really interesting because, you know, you wrote the book. So it's, it's one of those. <laughs> um, it's good. But no, I, I think you're, you're right on it because our, you know, everyone's going to be different. But ours is very much like intersectional, right? We're uh, when we think about theopoetics, we're thinking of this kind of intersectional place where, you know, this justice-seeking sense of religious reflection and being meets spirituality, imagination, the arts, embodiment, where we realize that all of these things matter when we do theology, when we reflect, and when we live our lives, right? And it's all, it all matters, and it all intersects, and sometimes it's messy, and that's okay. And so it makes space for all of that and, and how it lives and breathes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So theopoetics is like, it's like, it's a religious reflection 
that gives greater attention to the form of that reflection, to the to the genre it's in, and to like the methods that are being used. So, you know, it's sometimes people think about uh, religious reflection or theology just as the, the content of it. And, and we say, no, it's also the, the method or means of it, right? So if I give somebody something to read and it's a theology article and I ask them to tell me about the theology in it, they're going to answer, they're going to report back on the argument largely mm-hmm. as opposed to what did it feel like to read it? What was the experience of it? They won't even think to tell me it was an article and not a film or a dance. It, it's presumed that theological or religious reflection is a particular style of academic Western uh, prose. And that's not wrong. There's nothing bad about it. And in fact, you're accurate to think that because most of what counts as religion, religious scholarship or theological scholarship is that. But we want to say um, there's, there's a legitimate space for art and the body as a means of religious reflection. It's not yeah. the same thing as academic theology. But it is religious reflection, and we we theo poetics in the arc sense legitimates the body and art and the, the in our experience as a means or or a source of religious reflection. Yeah, mm. a way of being, a way of knowing, a way of living out life, right? So we're like art and faith matter. Period. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and the and the pun there, right, is that art and faith should matter, right? It should be fleshy. Art should matter. Faith should matter. It should have matter to it, not just be. <laughs> well, you know, along those lines, one of the things that you mentioned uh, in your book, Khaled, was that the exclusion of fleshly knowledge is a tool of control. Mm. And so I'd love to hear you both reflect on how we have come to a place in our world where we have excluded fleshly knowledge as a legitimate source of revelation or, or experience. Mm. Um, and, you know, maybe even help us chart a course for uh, through the history of theopoetics, how uh, it helps us recover that that sense that was lost and maybe the enlightenment or modernism. Yeah, the exclusion of it is tool control, right? So it's not like we cut it out and then we figured, ooh, this is useful for control. What happened was we live in a misogynistic, white supremacist culture um, and a good way to put down women and people of color is by saying their experience doesn't matter. And one of the ways you could say that their experience doesn't matter <laughs> is to say bodies don't matter. I, right. I honestly think that that's how it came about. And I'm not, I don't mean like the oppression of people of color at kind of beginning with, you know, the institution of the, the slave trade or something. I mean, for a long time, women have been denied their full place in, in society. And this is one of the, the tools of that. Um, misogynistic push, push down and oppression. I don't know. That's how I think about it. I is that, yeah. <laughs> being, a, being a black woman, that is accurate. <laughs> you know, um, it's just, yeah, that's, that's what I, that's how I, that's where I think it comes from. I mean, there's probably like some historical stuff that I don't know as good, like about in the Christian context. I mean, Pauline thought and Hellenism coming into interaction with, I don't know, what do you call it? Hebraic thought or is, you know, the kind of Judaic thought of the time. Um, but, but I also think that it, like, it didn't start with Paul and it didn't start with the Greeks. There's a, there's a, there's a way in which we have within, um, I think a lot of Western culture not allowed for it. And one of the main 
reasons is to deny the experience of people who aren't in power. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, which, which draws out the liberational uh, aspect of, of how ARC specifically positions themselves and, and does uh, theopoetics. So, so, you know, if you had to trace a lineage for how you all have gotten to be ARC in the form that it is today, where do you, where do you start and, and how do you see the history of theopoetics, um, you know, sort of, in a sense, leading you into a place where you, you are inhabiting this embodied and creative uh, way of being today? Hmm. It's like a long lineage. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess if we had to start, we definitely have to start, I mean, like goes way back what, like 1962, I think was when like the Society for Art, Religion and Contemporary Culture um, was an organization that was started by, I mean, you're talking about powerhouse folks like, you know, Paul Tillich and Amos Wilder. And I mean, just, you know. He's the one who wrote the book on Theopoetics, by the way. <laughs> Literally, that's the name yeah. of the book. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I mean, you know, these powerhouses and they have like fellows, like, you know, people that I'm personally, you know, Charles Long and Abraham Heschel and like people that, you know, are have influenced this stuff. I mean, and so they started this work, right? They, they had a magazine called Directions that they published. They had fellows. They um, partnered with like different places around, right? Like a, I think St. Peter's Church, um, different places because there was like an art hub there. And so just different places that it connected with. Um, um, do you want to add any more about that, Cal, before we talk about ATRE? Yeah. I mean, so the thing that's really kind of interesting about the, the history of the United States in terms of art and theology and literature and theology has its origins in the Society for Arts, Religion, and Contemporary Culture. Like yeah. the, the guy who was the founder of the Museum of Modern Art in New York City was was one of the first founders of, of SARC, the Society for Arts, Religion, and Contemporary Culture. <laughs> and, and Joseph Campbell, like the myth guy, he was one of the founders. And um, uh, what is his name? Luther Adams, one of the founders of modern Unitarian Universalists. He was one of the founders, right? And so, what we ha- what we saw was like these people, tr- and at that time in like the sixty, I think that's the right date, sixty two, they were trying to say, "Hey, look, modern art." And by that, they meant like capital M. What's the splatter paint guy? Pollock, Pollock, yeah, Pollock, like that kind of stuff, right? Where it's like people weren't really sure what to do with it. And they were like, no, look, look, no, art, just because it's art has a place in religious reflection. It doesn't have to be about Jesus or Buddha or Shiva or something. And they were trying to like set up shop all across the country and they wanted to build like places for religious reflection attached to museums across the country. They wanted one in LA and Chicago and New York, and they wanted these places where people could, in the modern era, reflect on transcendence. I think that's that would be their language <laughs> on the something moreness um, <laughs> using art. And um, so they really were committed to that work and did an enormous amount of stuff. And in fact, like the guy who founded the first theology and literature program in the world in the country uh, is a guy named Stanley Hopper, and he was on their board. Um, so like. The, the origins of the way that people study like theology and art has a lot to do with the people who started this thing back in the 60s. And we're really grateful to be able to like mm-hmm. in, in, inherit it in lots of ways. Yeah, just rich history and oh my goodness, like just like carrying that on and knowing that we have that part of our story now is, 
is incredibly humbling and just, but just so powerful to say like, this is kind of where it started and we get to kind of carry this torch on, right? Um, which is exciting because of, you know, Khaled who wrote, wrote the book here in what, two, 2009, basically Khaled's like, I'm going to put this stuff out there because people need to know about this. <laughs> um, um, and I mean, kind of just, we started with this, the Association for Theopoetics Research and Exploration. Um, and, you know, a lot of this, you know, started with a lot of, you know, Khaled, you know, going out here doing, doing the thing and meeting other people that were excited about doing this thing that we weren't quite sure what the thing was. <laughs> Like, you know, because it was so, it was so all of these things. And we're like, well, we're all about doing this thing. And we kind of connected with each other. And Kelly was like, hey, do you know this person? Do you know? <laughs> and so we kind of all started getting together saying, hey, we're all really interested in these intersections of spirituality, imagination, arts, embodiment, and like all of these spaces. But we're not noticing that there's space for this necessarily in the academies or the places that we were finding ourselves. Right. It wasn't as valuable or it wasn't something that we, we were seeing, but we found that our space together uh, was a space that we were finding enriching and that we were getting life from that we could understand each other that like the the things that we were talking made sense to other people uh, in ways that they didn't always in in other communities or groups or organizations that we found ourselves in um, we could say art and faith matter and there was no question you know what I mean it wasn't like really <laughs> it was like no that's a fact that's a starting foundational fact and we get to move on from there so we started this thing <laughs> Kelly, <laughs> you were in a major heart, so do you want to pick up from there? Then we well, started. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the thing that like zooming back in the conversation a little bit, Keisha kind of dropped this like high tech word, which is like a really important word to me, which is intersectional. And <laughs> like here's the thing is like intersectional means kind of thinking about the complex identities we have and the ways that power and privilege and oppression play throughout those, right? So like I am a white dude. Um, and I am kind of uh, married to a woman. So even though I'm bisexual, it doesn't matter because that identity gets erased and I don't get to be oppressed because of my bisexuality because everyone just assumes I'm straight. But I also um, grew up poor or did I grow up rich or did I go to college or, you know, like, so there's all these different layers and to really do analysis, like I think that really does power work, right? I mean, the, the, the uh, what's her name? Kimberly Crenshaw is I think where this kind of language comes from. Like, if we're really going to think about the different ways of oppression and power work, we got to pay attention to it. And that's key to what we're doing. Because in some ways, the theopoetic stuff isn't new at all. There's like nothing really interesting about it in the slightest. Th this is stuff that feminists said years ago, and womanists said years ago, and queer theorists said years ago. And poor people have been saying forever. Like, <laughs> right? it's not new. It's just that we start with aesthetics, which is something everyone eventually gets to, right? Um, the fancy French guy, what's his name? Foucault, the, the <laughs> philosopher guy, he has this word that um, people call power knowledge with like a little hyphen in there. But what's cool, I just recently learned is in French, it's, um, oh, dang, um, what is it in French? Uh, pouvoir savoir. It's like to, uh, to, to be able to know. So it's like powering knowing. So it's, it's process. The process of acquiring power is the process of, of having power over knowledge. And so everyone, all oppressed groups end up saying that, right? I mean, at some point in time, there's going to be a womanist critique of the way language gets done. There's going to be 
you know, because black women know about that. There's going to be a queer critique of the way knowledge gets done because queer folk know about that, et cetera, et cetera. And we just start with aesthetics. We start with genre. We start with how. And as instead of starting with an identity of a black woman or starting with a feminist identity or, you know, or whatever it is, but we then don't say you don't get to have that identity. That would be ludicrous. Right. So, so <clears throat> Keisha identifies, right. I think as a woman is scholar and she talks about her experience as a black woman and that's how she sounds. I don't sound like that. I shouldn't sound like that. <laughs> but where we come to the table at is like, wow, if we really pay attention to aesthetics if we really pay attention to how stuff gets done, she's got some serious critique about it. And I got some serious critique for different reasons, but we could be at the same table because we're looking at how together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in placing that primacy on the how, or that, uh, you know, it's also, I, I kind of work in more of the process sector of, of uh, theopoetics. And so, you know, Whitehead's philosophy, you know, even though some, some of the liberationists might have a critique about the meta uh, elements of it, uh, really at its core is, I, I call it often a meta poetics or a meta aesthetics. And so there's, there's placing a, pri- there's a primacy that's placed in that philosophy, even on the, um, you, you know, the, the aesthetic uh, experience as central to, to how reality operates. So, uh, w- you know, when we, when we think about this, you, you know, uh, tell me a bit about how you see um, that primacy being so important today uh, with, with where not only theology is at today, but where our country is at and how it can lead us, uh, you know, to water or how, how it can lead us to a place where, um, where we are being empowered in our experiences to have, you know, intersectional um, relationships and, and that there's a beauty that, that, only comes from the fullness of our plurality in that sense. Um, so I, when I teach classes, um, one of the beginning activities, because I believe we have to start with body, is, is that um, I have us do like this four corner thing. So I have them kind of write parts of their identity in four corners. And, um, and it's like, you know, in that moment, realizing that there's so many more parts of our identity, a part of who we are that we're not, you know, but just four that are the most prevalent right now. Um, and then I go and I have them rip off one of those corners without looking, without knowing, without anything. And then I have them throw it across the room to somebody that might happen to be there, <laughs> whether they catch it or not. Um, but then we have this discussion about how in every space, like we have these multiple identities that we are bringing with us. And when there are things like microaggressions, macroaggressions, when there are issues where, you know, people that have issues with people of color, or I mean, all of the given isms that are out in the world, that we're asking people to rip off parts of who they are. We're saying, check who you are at the door because you are not welcome. Um, And that's what happens when we don't invite all of who people are into spaces. Mm. When we don't start, at least for me, when we don't start with the work of the body and who we are, when we don't engage people um, as bodies in the beginning. Because what happens is we're just floating heads in a classroom. And if you make a comment that you hurt someone, it doesn't matter because I'm just talking to another floating head. Um, and for me, that's why it matters to talk about the body because I'm not just a floating head, okay? I have a lovely body that is attached to that floating head. Um, and so when we start to recognize that, um, we have this way of now, okay, now I can I speak a little differently because I realize you have a history, heritage, context that I am now a little bit more aware of than I, when I first walked in this space. So before I just put out some horrible ism <laughs> that I'm about to do, I might think twice about that. Or, or I'm going to feel a little bit more okay about saying, hey, 
um, you know, holding you accountable and saying, hey, that wasn't really cool to say, and let's unpack why, um, why that's not okay. But if we don't already from the beginning make that space for our bodies to be what I like to kind of call a sense of like a counter environment, right? Like this environment where we can actually be brave enough to have these discussions and invite our bodies, then, then we're already kind of thrown off from the beginning. So for me, the sense of aesthetics, the sense of body have to start from the very beginning because it changes the entire space. It changes exactly how we're doing things, whether it's a learning, whether it's at a church, whether it's out in the street, wherever it is, you're not just encountering a person that's a head or a church or a this, but someone that has a body, a history, a cultural, a context um, that they carry with them. And when you ask someone to check a part of that at the door, um, it's just, it's not okay. And it's not accepting all of who they are. We need to get more of a holistic kind of learning and education and being. Yeah. And, that, and that's exactly right. I mean, when I, when I talk about privilege, I talk about vampiric power. Um, so you know how like in movies and stuff, vampires don't show up in the mirror. Right. That's one of the yeah, things that that's one of the things privilege allows you to do is not have to see yourself. Mm. Mm, that, yeah, that, that'll preach. Right. right. So privilege right? is privilege is vampiric power. It allows you to take the life out of other people by not seeing yourself. Mm. Um, and so I think these days, you know, it's super key to do that. So, for example, um, we're kind of living in the wake of uh, the, the social media world of the Me Too hashtag, right? Ways that women were talking about um, sexual harassment and, and, and more and, and violation and, and, and some really heinous ways in which women uh, are, 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 are violated and denied. And I saw, for example, a lot of my, um, my brothers say, I'm so sorry. It's so horrible. I didn't know this. I didn't know. And on the one hand, I think, have you not been paying attention? Are you not aware of how prevalent, you know, rape and molestation and heinousness is? And then on another, and I was thinking that, but I didn't say that because I'm not always like, like, what's that going to do? And like, I'm not a, I'm not an asshole. Um, right. But then I started thinking like, well, there's actually another layer to that, which is that like, I've been, I've been one of the people who made someone say me too. Not because I, I drugged a woman and raped her or something, but I am hundred percent certain that the the kind of toxic masculinity that we live in um, is is the kind of thing where um, I've participated in it either by laughing at a joke or doing something I'm 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 not supposed to do or or pushing too hard and, and not taking no as an answer and 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 admitting it is something I felt like I was compelled to do because I pay so much attention to how. That if I didn't allow myself to name like my own history and my own history of power, then I wouldn't be doing the stuff that I say is important to do. Just to, I don't know. I just I just want to jump on the um, just real quick because um, I know you were talking about the Me Too hashtag, and I just think especially if we're talking about um, all of body and and you know all of who one is and power and privilege, like but also recognizing that there you know even though a lot of people were putting that hashtag out, there were a lot of people that didn't feel safe to put that hashtag out, right? There were a lot of people that didn't have that place of access or a privilege to say, I'm okay to actually name this. Um, but realizing that that this is all part of the work that we're doing of making space for all of the voices, even the ones that still feel like they're not safe, that feel like, you know, they're still silenced, that feel like, hey, well, we can make space for that, right? And, and still be able to name that there are probably many women, and I'm probably gonna say I have many friends of color who did not feel safe um, to put that and say, me too. I've had many white friends that were white women that 
had no problem putting that hashtag out there. But in my circle, they like, you know, we didn't feel safe. I don't know what's going to happen when I put this out there. I don't want me to turn into a victim when I have to work so hard to reclaim this power that I, you know, in, in authority, in a space that I have had to work really, really sometimes two and three times harder for than people in my, in my circle that are, have a different hue <laughs> mm-hmm. than I might have. Um, and so just realize that even in that space, power, privilege, class, status, all of that still has an effect and makes a difference. And that's kind of what we're trying to bring to the table and say, mm-hmm. all of this matters in every instance. Um, yeah. And so we can turn it around, right? And this is actually how I came to this stuff personally, is let's study mm-hmm. Facebook posts, right? right? <laughs> I'm, a, I, I'm a media scholar. Before I was anything, I, I studied media theory and communication theory. And if we start looking at, for example, the demographics of Facebook posts around the hashtag Me Too, we will find things that the mm-hmm. theory and theology of womanism found years ago, and we'll have evidence for it through looking at at the, the, the container. If we actually look at the posts, look at who made the post, look at the length of the post, look at who saw the post. If we look at the, at the how the message is getting out there, not just that there's a message, but the how of it, we will learn something about what's going on that doesn't change the, the content, right? It doesn't overwrite the, the what, but it certainly m- modulates the what. And, and, and you see it. You don't have to just theorize about it. When you start looking at who you're citing, uh, what you think not counts as knowledge, the kind of people that you get knowledge from, the kind of people whose knowledge you repeat, <laughs> all of that kind of stuff, you start to realize there are patterns there that you didn't see about yourself because of the way that vampiric power operates within privilege. Mm, true. Oh, yeah. Well, well, thanks for sharing that, because mm-hmm. it seems that Theopoetics is offering us in its relationality and it's placing uh, a heavy emphasis on on being that full self that is not vampiric and being seen fully. It, it offers us a way to subvert some of those power structures so that we can uh, enter into, uh, you know, true relationship in a way that transforms our experiences, too. Um, mm-hmm. So I want to for a moment you know, uh, just make a little shift in, and, but it's along the same lines of the body and story. And I, I would love to hear from both of you, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about your body and your story and just how you got into theopoetics. Um, you know, like what, what was it in your journey that brought you to this place where this was the, the modality that you started to employ or the lens for theology that you started to use? And just give us a little, a little snapshot about, about your life and your experience. Mm. Hal, do you want to go first? Do you want me to? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I'll, I'll just point out that that question is exactly part of what's going on here. Some people don't have an option mm-hmm. in terms of how they do it. This is just how the world is, right? So as a black woman, for example, Keisha doesn't have the option to not, do, she doesn't have the option to not pay attention to her body and not pay attention to what she sounds like. She can't, Mm-mm. right? So, so it's, in some ways, Keisha doesn't need to call what she does the poetics. She's just ha- dealing, dealing, and and thriving in a world that's that's dominated by white supremacy, right? So, so I have the option to listen to Keisha or not, <laughs> right? I chose to get decide to have this be my modality. That's not an option on her on her plate, as far as I can tell. <laughs> 
Um, let you go first since I was waiting. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 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 people have different. Again, I'll go back to that word that Keisha dropped earlier. You have different levels of the exercise of power. You know, there, Keisha has a PhD, and Keisha is, has a certain intellect, and Keisha has certain health, and you know, like I mean, there's just different ways in which she's not just a black woman. She's all kinds of things, and she's married, and she's brilliant, and she, you know, there's all all there's all these things about her, and there's all these things about me and about everybody, and so there's different levels and places you exercise power, and I think the issue is for the people who don't have to pay attention to uh, what and how in the same way everyone else does. People who don't ever have to think about code switching, about talking to sound powerful enough, um, then those of us for whom we don't have to code switch, um, we have the choice to say, do I recognize that my sense of not needing to change anything comes about as a result of an inherited history? Um, you know, I, I say to people when, I, when I'm doing kind of like race uh, stuff explicitly in workshops or teaching, I said, look, there is nothing wrong with being a, a, a white person or being a white male. Um, uh, there isn't, there's anything wrong with it. But if you don't acknowledge the, the history of maleness and the history of whiteness and how that gives you something, um, you're not really aware of who you are and so you know i actually think that the, the one of the powers of of the theopoetic stuff in, in terms of religious discourse in general it, it's certainly applicable to christianity but just in general is if we're really thinking about the way power um, erases the need for reflection and we're going to try to come up with positive white identities positive male identities instead of just this gaping absence and just the exercise of power, we're going to have to create those. We're going to have to name and new name what a positive male identity is, what a positive thriving white identity is. And that can't be the same story as it's been <laughs> if we're trying to challenge oppression. And so the making of it, that, that creating of it will happen through songs and films and, and movement. And um, we have to make it because uh, up until this point, you know, a lot of what it has been has just been presumed power kind of unreflected upon. I don't know. That, that's how that's how I think of that stuff. And and right. I'll have to sound different than other people who get who have less societal power than I do. First of all, I love the way you talk about me, Kyla. Thank you. I just want to flip my hair and be like, I need you to like write my whole bio and introduction because it was just everything. So thank you. Um, no, but I mean, literally that was kind of going to be what I said, like, you know, how did I get into this work? I was born into it. I was born into it by the mere fact of the color of my skin, of the curls in this hair, because they are wonderful and delicious and just all the things. And so um, I didn't get a choice, right? Uh, you know, because from birth, how light am I? How dark am I? How, how good, quotes, that's in air quotes, um, is my hair? How are all the things, right? And then as I grow up, I'm playing, if I'm playing sports, oh, she must be really good because she's a little black girl or, you know, whatever the case may be, you know, or, I, you know, you walk on the street, oh, cat calls, all the things. You, people feel free to comment on my body, on my behind, on my hair. They feel like they can touch my hair and that's a whole nother issue, but we're just not going to go there, which it's not okay though, folks. It's not okay. Um, but just all of those things that are part of, living and being and trying to thrive in a world where I don't get to in the same way that other people get to because my body is automatically assumed as communal property. And it is not. 
Um, and so more than anything, it's this pushback to let people know that. But then when I do that, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm the black bitch or I'm this angry black bitter woman. And it's like, well, heck, I can't even, you know. Um, but then, you know, when I do say something, oh, you are so articulate for a black girl. Mm, that is not a compliment. Like, you know, just all the things. And so I have never had a choice about my body. The choice that I made was when I decided to take ownership over my body and call people out when they try to take ownership over my body and they still try to take ownership over my body. And I have to put the push back and say, no, that is, that is not okay. That is not acceptable. But I haven't always been in a space where I've been okay to say that. It's never been a safe enough space or a brave space to be able to say those kinds of things because I had to get my voice. I had to figure out why it wasn't okay. I had to figure out what it meant to me. I had to figure out what it actually did to me. All these micro and macro questions that I would just bury down and bury down because that's what I'm supposed to do because I'm just supposed to, you know, let people touch my hair. I'm just supposed to be the nice, sweet, pretty black girl in the back and not say anything. When I was like, no, that is not who I've been called to be. And that's not the space I've been called to be in. And if I make sense of the world through dance, which I do through dance and play and all of these things and that people don't see as valuable, I have to make space at the table for it. And even if they don't make a space for me, I have to scoot some chairs aside and say, excuse me, move to the left, you move to the right. And I'm just going to pull my chair up right here and say, what's going on? Mm -hmm. um, and realizing that in those spaces, it's difficult. But I will say, you know, thanks, thankful for, you know, women like with Alice Walkers, the Bell Hooks, the, you know, Audrey Lords, the, you know, you know, um, what all of the amazing women that have gone before the Katie Cannons, the, you know, Dolores Williams, the, all of these women that have come before that have kicked down doors so that I could walk through them um, are reasons why I'm doing this work. Cause I'm like, it is valuable. It is work that needs to be done. These, these women have been kicking down these doors in ways that it wasn't appreciated. And I can come into this space and say, no, my body does matter. My dance matters and it should matter in every space that I'm in. Um, and that's how I understand the world. And that doesn't make it bad or less than it means other people need to understand it. Cause I guarantee mm -hmm. you there are other people that make sense of the world in the exact same way that I do. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just a matter of making space and letting those voices and experiences be heard and validating them and saying that they're important, that they matter, not just the, the Moltmans, the, you know, the Gottimers, the, all of those great things. But guess what? Our experiences matter too. Um, and just making a space for that. So I've never had a choice about body, but you're darn sure I'm going to make space. So. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for sharing. I mean, um, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a, a, a trend here in our conversation uh, <laughs> and I think it would be easy for people when they first hear the word theopoetics uh, mm -hmm. to leave it at language. Mm. What I'm hearing you both say is that there's something down in the depths of mm. theopoetic task that is much deeper, much more embodied, much more um, uh, experiential. And so when you think about the task of theology and you think about uh, bringing these conversations back to body and experience and listening to you know, the testimonies of those who have, have historically been marginalized. Uh, and, and you think about, um, you know, the role that embodiment plays in our language. How, how, how do you, uh, when, when you are teaching or you are preaching or you are, are in class teaching students to, to inhabit this, this way or this lens of doing theology, um, what, what are your methods? What, what sort of things come up for you as you, uh, you know, as, as you, you play with language, but you also keep bringing it back to, to the depths of, of these experiences? Yeah. So I'll say one technical thing, and then I want to, Keisha can, can, can go off for days if you ask. <laughs> if you start asking someone about how teaching works, Keisha, Keisha is the pinnacle. 
Uh, but, but here's my little here's my little nerdy technical thing before she drops some actual wisdom on you. Um, so theo poetics, like as a word, um, comes from theo as in God from Greek, um, um, and then um, uh, poesis, which is the the a verb for for making. And here's here's the thing, right? So we think of poems. As as like little rhymey dimey kinds of things like the Dr. Seuss, right? That's like a that's like a poem book, but actually, poesis just means to make, and it means so a poem is just a made thing, um, and 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 there's a special kind of making that poesis is. There's another word in Greek that I would remember if I was better at Greek, and that's the kind of making you use when you like uh, I don't know make your bed or you make an egg or you make you know make a friend. Uh, that might be different. Make an egg or make your bed. Um, the poesis making is the creation of novelty or something that has not been before. So theopoetics is um, how we make God. Now that's 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 an issue for some people. So what I say is that's how we make our idea of God. Let's acknowledge that the way we receive God is shaped by our experience. It's not. It doesn't maybe originate in our experience, right? That's the Feuerbach critique, but it's certainly shaped by our experience. And so how we make God um, is uh, worth looking into. So then theopoetics is to say, what are the things, what are the tools, what are the experiences, what are the media that have shaped how we then have made God and how we see God? And so that means it's not just about words, but any of the things that humans have made we all, and, and the word for the things humans have made is culture. <laughs> uh, and, and, so, um, and so wherever you see the products of human making, um, when you reflect on the products of human making and how the products of human making make how we think about God, what we're talking about is theopoetics. Mm-hmm. Mm, well said. Um, so when we're doing the making, right, in a class, because <laughs> that's what I get really excited about, because um, a lot of my work is how, for me, um, what I'm doing the dissertation on is like doing double dutch, right? Like, uh, womanish modes of play uh, as pedagogical tools. And what so, is yeah. double dutch for people who don't know, Keisha? Yeah. So, it's when you, so it's when you take two ropes instead of one for jump rope and you have to like do this crazy dance of jumping in and out and not hurting yourself or breaking your neck and then you have people turning multiple it's a whole lot going on look it up i guarantee you there are plenty of youtube videos on this that will just be like oh my oh oh lord this is this is a skill and an art that many people are not called to i promise you that um but it's it's and so for me but i use it kind of as as an analogy for for the academy and for this work right because in in life we're, we're expected to jump rope. We have this one white male Christian heterosexual rope that everyone is expected to jump. And when that rope was not intended for you, it becomes very difficult to jump this rope when you have people that are turning it that are not your height, when you have all of these other factors that are there. And so what I say, is basically, we need to be doing double dutch and inviting another rope, which is womanism, because it's very, for me, it's very inclusive. It includes the community. It includes accountability. It just includes all of the things. And when you start doing double dutch, that means you're learning other other bodies of knowledge, not just, you know, the Gottimers and the Charles, you know, the Charles Taylors, but you're learning the Bell Hooks. You're learning about the Alice Walkers. You're learning about, you know, all of these other people in this rope, right? It brings in more inclusivity. Um, and so for me, I find that important. And that's what I really try to do in, in classes is, is bring this other rope in of introducing, which starts from day, well, you know, starts from one, who's on my syllabus, right? Like, 
you know, I feel like what Cal, you said you were going to do this at one point, but like having a, having a, a thing where you kind of how, um, when you have food and it's like the nutritional facts. Uh, and so basically we're going to have a thing for syllabi where it's like, uh, what inclusive facts or nutritional facts for a syllabus. How many white scholars, how many scholars of color, how, you know, how many women, like just all of the things that matter because people need to see themselves reflected in a class. And so I really venture to try to do something a little different and I try to co-create with whoever is in my class, which means that's a lot more work for me because I have to wait and see who's actually in my class, right? So I have this great syllabus structure, but then when I go into class starting day one, we talk about identity and what they hope to get out of the class. And then I have them put like two more goals that they actually hope to achieve out of the class. Who are some of the thinkers that you are really inspired by that you'd love to dig into a little bit more? How can we co-create this space so that you get something out of it too? And I'm not just this person that is supposedly this expert in the class dispensing knowledge. Hello, Frary banking method. Not down with that. I'm all about this critical thinking consciousness, very much bell hooks. I'm like, it's about presence and community and mutuality in this space. So you know, when we're talking, you know, I'm not, you know, Professor Keisha or whomever, I'm Keisha. Let's have this conversation. Let's talk about what this means here in our lives and for the work that we do. So I do activities like the identity piece. I try to connect books with movies, right? So for example, you know, we read Parker Palmer to know as we are known in a philosophy of education class. And I paired that with Dead Poet Society with Robin Williams and kind of this, what's the hidden curriculum? What's this uh, conventional classroom? What, how do we know? How do we make space for these different things? But realizing that people come to know in different ways. So maybe what they didn't get out of this book, they'll get when they watch the movie and try to make connections, right? But how do we do this in our lives? And I have them do reflections on their own personal experiences. And many of them have congregations. So what does this look like in your congregation? How do we see it? How do we catch it? Um, I have them do actual projects. I have them go talk to their youth. God forbid we talk to our youth. Um, so, we, <laughs> you know, I have them do projects where literally I just say, tell your youth to actually create this box, a cajita sagrada, which means sacred box in Spanish. And I say, tell them to create what your church does, what they learn, what they believe. And they come back and they're like, my youth, you know, they said that we don't do enough of this. They don't feel welcome. They don't feel this, or they do feel like it's brave, but you learn so much when you figure out how to sometimes step outside of what's been done just because it's been done. Um, and you bring a little bit of imagine, imagination, a little arts. Remember that we have bodies that we bring in the space and how we can do that differently in different classrooms and different spaces and just use those tools um, just to help and bring, and bring us back into the space, not just the books that have been written, but how do we breathe new life mm -hmm. into them based upon our own experiences, our own context, because they're always going to be different. And I always invite that into every class. Um, mm -hmm. So that's just me. That's a few and, one of the, and I think one of the things also, I mean, and we, we talk about this a lot um, in terms of the, the people who have been involved in kind of arcs, theopoetics conversations in the past, I don't know, I guess it's like six or seven years now, but um, is the role of craft in all of this. Yeah. So for example, th there are people who say, well, anyone can be a poet. And I, I suppose at some definitional level, that's true. Like I call something a poem, it's a poem that makes me a poet. Um, but, but the way we want to think about it is to say, when you, it, it is important to, to, to bring your body into the space and to um, try on new jump ropes and to try on new finger paints and new language and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Like, yes, 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 and yes. And um, what, what is the case is um, when you practice craft, right? When you try to get really good at something and as you're doing it, you have an eye towards excellence, 
not just like doing, but excellence of doing. And we can stretch what excellence is, who's excellence, by what standards, what counts as rigor, whatever it is. But whenever you're striving after that, whenever you're trying to kind of become more than you are in, in terms of a craft, you learn. There, there is a depth to artistic practice when it is pursued. And, and, and you're trying to cultivate a kind of knowing that comes from trying to be excellent at um, singing or jumping or 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 throwing or whatever it is that that has parallel motions to spiritual deepening uh, or spiritual maturity or something along those lines. So by all means, yes, everyone can dance, but um, not everyone can dance as well as everyone else. That doesn't make the better dancers better people, but it does mean there's something to pursue. So one of the reasons I bring this up is because a lot of times people read or think about the way we talk as anti-intellectual, and it's not that at all. It's just saying that what rigor looks like doesn't have to look like Germanic um, uh, prose, yes. which by and large within most academic circles, it does. And certainly within Christian academic circles, it definitely does. You know, um, I have, a, I have a, a colleague, um, for example, who was um, doing uh, doctoral work is not a, a white person and was told to sound more Anglo-Saxon, for example. Right. And, and, and that was just a stylistic critique because they weren't, quote, academic enough. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, for a moment, if we could get a little nerdy and, and do some, some theologizing, we, we are seeing a shift that is taking place specifically in religion, um, and, uh, Western, you know, American Christianity being one case study of that. But, uh, we, we have inherited something in the enlightenment that is sort of this addiction to certainty. And you're already naming the power structures behind those kinds of statements and saying that really it's this white Western patriarchal form of theology that, that has been dominant for so long. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're in our intersectionality in this new, you know, this now postmodern world coming into contact or bumping up against what we've inherited. And so it seems as though for many of us, we're employing theopoetics as a way forward, a way beyond that, a way into a new place. And I would love for you both to reflect for a moment, just theologically as, as theologians, as to a couple of things. One is the task of a theologian today. What, what is the task of a theologian today? Maybe specifically one who uses the theopoetic lens. And then the second element of that is as we're being called, um, you know, as Record talks about that idea of being being called beyond the desert of criticism into something like the second naivete, what what does that look like for you, and, and and where do you see us heading in this in this new place? Hmm. You want to go first, Khaled? <laughs> sure. Um, so I would say, so the first thing that comes into mind is the fact that I'm pretty sure that this is not just limited to Christianity as it's practiced or, uh, academic Christian theology. Um, I'm a Christian, um, and a, a minister and an academic. So all those things apply to me, but I have this sense that it's emerging other places in it. And at least one of the things that I'm thinking of here is this book, um, that I just recently read um, called Muslim Cool or Muslim Cool. And it's the subtitle is uh, Race, Religion, and Hip Hop in the United States. 
And um, it's by uh, Saud Abdul Kabir. Kabir? Kabir. I think it's Kabir. And um, uh, what we're seeing is there are dominant media forms, hip hop being perhaps one of the most enormous, that is kind of essential reading and putting air quotes around that. If you want to think about what it is that people think and how people are thinking, right? So um, certainly that has implications beyond um, Christianity. There are there's ways in which um, kind of across um, much of at least the Western hemisphere, there's a, a tr kind of a, a decline in um, religious attendance in some forms, um, but not but not all. So there is a kind of secular cultural Judaism or secular cultural Christianity, or I think some kinds of secular um, Islam and, and likely also perhaps other traditions. But but then the question in my mind is, if we start paying attention to kind of cultural forms, to made things and how the made things form our ideas of, of how we make our ideas about God, then that means that we should be not just um, using the old forms in our classes, right? So I think that part of what um, the task of a, a scholar or a thinker is, is to help people develop the skills and the thing that are, is going to serve them. So, you know, I want people to be thinking about not just writing academic prose, but also writing for newspapers, for writing for blog posts, for being good on Twitter, for um, if you're so inclined, being a songwriter, being a performer, being a, you name it. And I want to help you develop your craft and intentionality towards whatever that work is in terms of how you want to do reflection in terms of your own religious experience and the religious experience of your community. And yeah, I want you to be able to write, but I also want you to be able to do whatever it is that you feel is the most powerful way of communicating and expressing that which you've inherited from your community of practice. However that shows up. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we're going to see if, 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 if I was a betting man, I, I think that we're going to continue to see, um, what do you call that, but polarization in terms of this. I think it will be at the same time more and more common to see people um, inviting multiple forms of media and multiple ways of knowing into the academy. Um, and at the same time, you'll see some folks doubling down on the only legitimate form of academic religious reflection being uh, a kind of propositional Germanic prose. I think we'll see both. Yeah. I think, I guess also work like, cause I, you know, I work in the youth world. So I, I, I run a, a youth theology institute and these youth that I'm talking to are, I mean, number one, just brilliant people. I mean, just off the top, ridiculously brilliant. And, and, and we'll say what you mean by youth. I mean, I think this is important. Oh. So high school juniors and seniors is who I'm talking about. That's who comes to our, our Youth Theology Institute. And I mean, the things that these youth are saying, I mean, you know, one, like we have a, a group me and like I'm one youth, it just blew me out of the water um, when everything went down in Charlottesville. Um, and the youth was like, you know, hey, we're all talking about what the, you know, what the president is or isn't saying, where are the clergy? right? What are the clergy saying to respond to this? How are we addressing it? What are we doing? Right. And I'm like, these youth are like about that life. Like they're, <laughs> they're ready to do some things and to, and to like live into that. And for me, I feel like 
That's what theology has to do. It has to live, right? It can't just stay in, in, in the halls of these towers that we're, you know, planning and making these good things. It has to live on the ground, on the, on the streets, on the, you know, in the churches, in, in the lives of people. And if it doesn't make its way down, then I feel like we're doing it a disservice. It can't just live here. It has to come down and live and have breath on the streets, in people's hearts and people's lives. And if we're not doing a theology that can be lived, that can be practiced, that can be experienced, then part of me wonders, well, what are we doing? And so many youth are hungry for that. They are, I mean, thirsty and hungry and they're wondering why people are getting away from churches, churches that just stick with traditions, that don't want to step outside the box, that don't want to say, well, what does this mean to you in your context right here, right now, in this current world that we're living in? Because it shifts and changes all the time. And how can I address those concerns? You know, then where are they going to get that from? And I feel like for me, for me, that's becoming kind of this place of, of the theologian is is studying these theories, realizing this, but then feel like finding that place where we're, we're, we're bridging with the practical theologians, right? So we can do theology, but what does it also mean to be a practical theologian and to make sure it's hitting the ground, right? Mm-hmm. So, and so for me, I feel like we have to start going towards that because I mean, I feel like people are going towards that. What's happening in the world, things that are happening in people's lives, people are thirsty and hungry for something that's going to answer their sense of call, vocation, their passion, their purpose in life. And they want to know how they live out their faith in this world, whatever their faith may be. And how do they do that in a real way um, with real answers? Not the, we're just going to have church. We're not going to talk about sex. We're not going to talk about all these other things that we don't talk about. We have to start talking about them and we have to start making sure it's on the ground, touching lives and actually living and breathing up off the page. Yeah. And and I think the thing that that just made me think of is, so I, I can imagine some people hearing Keisha and and saying, "Well, screw that lady," because I do historical <laughs> historical systematic theological analysis, and I'm looking on the kind of the multiple threads that went into the Chalcedonian definition. Like, screw that lady. And and to some degree i think that you would be right to say screw that lady if you thought she, what she was doing is prescribing a new universal right which isn't the case so what I, what i want to suggest and correct me if i'm wrong here keisha but i think i think our position on a lot of this stuff doubles back down to that the communal and relational thing that you were talking about before so it's not just how does an academic do their work? It's not just the, the product of their scholarship. It's the container of their scholarship. So, for example, I'm a very um, kind of uh, action-oriented person, and I, I, I want to work with people who are getting things done. Um, but um, I'm a huge recur scholar, and the recur scholars who really matter don't know that because I don't publish uh, <laughs> recur things. I'm not smart enough to do that, but I've read all the stuff. I read the people who talk about that stuff and it's super high theory, but it has informed me. And so there are people who are recur scholars, like excellent thing who are in my circles who are because we know each other are, are therefore able to get that recurring goodness out into the world. So it's, it's not just you're a bad person for doing systematic theology. That's, that's not the point is we need better systems so that you and your excellent work can be yoked to other people who are going to then be affected by it. So it isn't just a critique of, of theology and the scholarship of theology and of scholars. It's about the whole system which silos and specifies 
and deadens everything and flattens everything into a kind of rigorous excellence that is disconnected kind of by its definition and instead saying, what does it look like for this human family to do this work together across denominational differences, across racial and gender differences, ability, um, and even religious discourse. Now, Christian doctrine is certainly not the same thing as um, kind of Muslim thought or the, the kind of thinking that goes into the yoga traditions, but we can all together kind of think about what does it mean to be our human family from our particular perspective. Um, and that doesn't mean we sacrifice our traditions, but, but if tradition is the inheritance of a thing that gives life because of a tradition and, and, and length of giving life, amen. If, if tradition becomes traditionalism, which is the passing on our tradition because, <laughs> then, then, we all, then we should all bail on it. But what we should do is across those differences, share where the life and power is and, and help that sharpen and inform our own work. I mean, I think that's really... That's, that's really key. And, and you'll notice the tactic there or the method there was to go back to not just the what of scholarship, but the how of scholarship. How does this get produced? What are the communities it comes from? What, what, what counts as scholarship? Mm. Yes. Well said. Thanks, Khaled. Snaps. All uh -huh. right. Well, and, and it's that sort of the siloing that happens in academia, you know, in the, that the systems that we have inherited have been inherently interdisciplinary rather than transdisciplinary you know and, and so that structure is already sitting there in place so what i'm hearing you both say is uh, um you know our need for each other yes for relationality in that way and and uh there's a beauty that only comes i think when we when we learn to connect those different those different perspectives those different scholarships uh, together to to create something novel or something new so mm -hmm. Um, thanks for distilling that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I don't hate the systematic theologians. I don't. I promise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. We need and, to do. Yeah, and, and yeah, right. And I think that's. I mean, it sounds like a silly thing, but it's not about not theology, no. right? It's not. It's not theopoetics is better than theology proper. No. That's not our position. It's that there's a way and a how of religious reflection that gives more attention to body, that gives more attention to style, to genre, to to, to medium. And that when more attention and possibility is considered when you're doing your theological work, um, good and good on you. There's still a place for Germanic prose. Absolutely. However, when it's claimed to be the only site of legitimate religious reflection, that's when we've got issues. Yeah, right. I, I love, sorry, I, I love the way Emily Town says that we have to realize that there's always another narrative that can be told. Mm. Um, and all we're saying is that there's another narrative that can be told and we want to lift that up too. Um, and that's really all it's saying is that these other narratives matter um, mm. and are just as important. Oh, yeah. I mean, in, in my field doing process stuff, you know, Catherine Keller talks a lot about polydoxy and the stuff that's, that's rattling around in the back of my head as you all are, are sharing there is, is that whole propping up of, uh, you know, not only a certain kind of orthodoxy or there's a, there is a right way to do this and a wrong way to do this. And there's, there's an exclusionary element there, but there's also this, this sense of like, you know, that, 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 that orthodoxy that is being propped up is in bed with a lot of, uh, of, uh, you know, very white, very Western movement that, that we are, you know, all in a sense, uh, attempting to subvert. So, so there's, there's a lot of work to do, 
uh, in that, um, you know, and, and so I, 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 you know, I'm just grateful for your contribution in, in that because uh, there are many of us who, who need to wake up to, to that reality. Mm -hmm. So, and I think Catherine's work there is really interesting. And I have on a number of occasions recommended a word that she start using and she has not. <laughs> so monorthodoxy, because the issue isn't orthodoxy, which is right action, but one right action. So mono-orthodoxy, monorthodoxy. The critique that needs to be made is around monorthodoxy, not orthodoxy. Because, for example, Keisha and I, and a lot of the people who are involved, either in the leadership or in the conversations or the publishing, the corner of the work that ARC has done, will not make a claim against orthodoxy. It's not that there's no such thing as rightness or right action. It's that the exclusive claim to a, a monolithic orthodox position is to be countered. And so it is not about uh, a problem with orthodoxy. It's, with a, it's a problem against monolithic orthodoxy or monorthodoxy. Um, because, because strand, what's that? Which is the popular strand yeah. of orthodoxy. Yeah, no, it's, it's almost the exclusive brand of orthodoxy. But what I want to make space for is an understanding of orthodoxy that is, um, th that potentially um, is broader than we've con th considered it. Um, and, 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 you know, that doesn't mean that anything goes. There are some people I don't want at the table for a, a variety of reasons. And like, if you're going to be doing kind of, I don't know, wild Nazi stuff, like, um, I'm going to say you're wrong. Not like, well, that's your opinion. Like I get to, I get to have positions around, around justice and ethics that can be firm, but that doesn't, that doesn't. So the, the wishy wishy you know, so the, I guess the point behind all this, I'm being super unclear is, Sometimes people say, if you bring art into it and you bring this relational part into it, like anything goes, it's a slippery slope. And I, I call BS on that. And I call BS on that in a, in a love, via a lovely little piece from Stanley Fish, who's an English professor somewhere. And he says, look, the idea that meaning is pliable is great. It doesn't mean anything goes. The poem, Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright, does not mean, hey, honey, could you pick me up some milk on the way home? Do <laughs> you want to know why? Because it doesn't. <laughs> right? I know you're passionate about this. It doesn't mean that. How do you know it, it, it mean that? Because it doesn't. Right. So just because you allow for a variety of meanings and interpretations and quote the right interpretation of a thing doesn't mean that anything goes. And that argument is played out and whack as heck. Mm. Well, thanks for uh, deconstructing that for us. So here, let's let's uh, let's talk the poetics uh, for our moms for a moment. Uh, so if I was to ask you, you know, define the poetics in such a way that your mom would understand it, what's your answer? It's paying attention to uh, thinking about religion in ways that uh, is is pretty okay with art, creativity, and imagination. And because of that, pays a lot more attention to, to bodies. Hmm. I, I would, I would Keisha say, and I don't have the same mom, in case no, we were don't. wondering. <laughs> no, Barbara Jean did not have. <laughs> um, no, but um, I guess if I was talking to my mom, I would like, hey, mom, <laughs> um, all that you are and all that you believe matters. 
it matters in the world. It matters to to God. You're a Christian, so that's what I would. And so I feel like that's kind of what I would I would say to her, and that all that she is, uh, that you know, includes her body, includes all of her. And I would say all that matters. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. So if you were to uh, reflect on the role of the theologian today in a more succinct manner than we just did a moment ago, what would you say the role of the theologian in the 21st century is? Uh, I don't know who wants to go first. I guess I'll go. Um, the role of theologian in the uh, right now in our day and time um, is to stay relevant, to stay current, uh, and to and to produce work uh, that can live off the page uh, and in the world. Um, well, I'll be honest with you, man. Uh, the the role of the theologian within the academy writ large is to be as irrelevant as possible. Um, that's, that's, that's the unwritten rules of the Academy, um, True. that what you're supposed to do, what we're supposed to do is generate, um, a novel contribution to the field. And the field is the field of academic discourse. And I love that field, but largely, um, you know, uh, that's not what's needed. I'll, I'll be frank about that. And I can say it's actually not just my opinion. I'm a, I'm a big fan of data. Um, the American Theological Schools, the ATS, the kind of association, the accrediting body, no, has looked at like what, do, what goes into making theologians, that's to say like what happens in PhD programs. And then they talk to people in their first five years of working as theologians and they say, did you get what you need? And the answer is no. <laughs> it's just empirical it's like a resounding no what they got was the ability to have very specialized silos of information and knowledge that wasn't as useful to them in terms of teaching as possible so that's my empirical answer here's my here's my more generous answer um what i would like the role of a theologian to be is um assisting in the formation of uh, christian leaders that's what I want them to do. I want them to be able to provide people with knowledge and ways of thinking that allow people who are in their own formation process as leaders to become better leaders. Hmm. Super helpful. Uh, not everyone sees it that way, um, but but that's what I would wish it to be. Mm-hmm. And again, I just like that data. I mean, it's just clear. The school, the, the organization that's in charge of telling people whether they count as a school or not has done the math. Our doctoral programs are not producing in of themselves good professors. Mm-hmm. And it's not those people's fault. <laughs> mm. I would also hope that they are attached to a community, right? To help keep them accountable, but to also like make sure it's living. Mm. So I, I, I like that. That way they're kind of keeping a sense of community that they're go- accountable to and responsible for, for the work yeah. that they're producing. Yeah. yeah. And I want to go back and say, it's not... <laughs> It's yeah. Sorry, this is like this is the thing I'm most nerdy about out of anything. So you went in the wrong direction, Tim. No, but I mean, I think I I, want to in the event that I come off as like hateful towards people who are theologians. Like I'm one. The 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 problem is that we've we don't um, we've got all kinds of systems and structures telling us we're supposed to do one thing, and that thing is largely not connected to most people. 
Yep. And so it's not really anyone's fault so much, but like if you want to be in this kind of world doing academic theological work, you're going to have to play by some rules that are not super great rules for relevance in the 21st century. Sure. So uh, if I'm new to theopoetics, if this, I'm listening to this episode and this is my first engagement with the topic, what do I need to know, uh, you know, about, about it? What are, what are some resources I can be pointed to? Books, uh, thinkers, uh, activists, um, uh, movers and shakers. What, what, what do I need to know if I'm just getting into theopoetics? Goodness. So, so, so if you are a Christian, um, I, I would start with that. If you are a Christian and interested in theopoetics, um, buy Patrick Reyes's book, Nobody Cries When We Die. Yes. It is the most contemporary theopoetic as a theopoetic. He doesn't use the word anywhere in there, I don't think. But what he has done is written this autobiographical novel, a thick, beautiful, poetic autobiographical novel that is theology. Mm. Okay. So that's the place, that would be the place to start. Um, in terms of experiencing it. And then if you want to kind of get the the butterfly on a, a pinboard version of Theopoetics, you know, like where you archive it, so you put the little bugs in the drawer so you can open it up and look and see the different species. If you would like that version of the experience, you can go to artsreligionculture.org. That's us, ARC, artsreligionculture.org. And um, check out, uh, our resources and definitions list. And then there's a huge bibliography there. There's a bunch of different definitions, there's some videos, there's books and essays and all kinds of stuff. That's what I usually say. Is that, what do you say, Keisha? I mean, I, I say Pat's book. I also say our website. I also say your book. Hello, way to water. Hmm. Um, uh, I mean, but even on that list, we have, I mean, amazing resources. It all depends on kind of where you're entering um, and what you want, where you, where you're starting. But I really think Pat's book is, I mean, I think that's a great, a great, a great introduction to kind of how you do this work, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I agree. Check out our website, our resource list. And that, that the, 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 thing, the thing that kind of res, resides behind um, Patrick Reyes's book is um, uh, Huba Malvez. Um, yeah. his, his work is, is incredible. Transparencies is a beautiful book. I think that's probably the book I recommend most in like the world, partly because it's a beautiful thing to hold. Like the book in its full presentation is an incredible cover. It's a unique size. The essays are easy to read and it's a great translations from the Portuguese. Um, and uh, Transparencies of Eternity is, uh, is the book by Juan Alves. Um, and then his Poet Prophet Warrior is the one from 91. Um, but uh, so those, those, those books are experiences of theopoetics. And then if you wanna do more of the theory, deary kind of stuff, there's all kinds of junk on our website. That's a good place to start. It's not junk. It's great. PS. It's all the great stuff. It's all the great <laughs> stuff on our website. Well, Keisha and Khaled, thank you so much for joining me today. This conversation has been uh, mutually enriching, I hope. Um, yeah. And it's great to get an introduction to Theopoetics from, from two of the, uh, in my mind, the foremost uh, scholars and practitioners. <laughs> So, uh, thanks for being here. Hey, just as we leave today, how can we keep up with what you all are doing at ARC? Uh, what's on the horizon? Tell us where to go. 
Goodness, so, so much. So first, we already called out that website, which has all of our stuff, uh, which is art. So arts, um, artsreligionculture.org. Um, let's see, what do we have? What journal we, we put out? We sponsor different kind of events at some of the more academic-y places, um, but we're also having crazy partnerships with places like, you know, sanctuaries. And I mean, just, we have a lot of cool things going on. And so um, you can check out our website and see all the great things. Wonderful. So there, there are a multiplicity of ways that you can, you can get involved. So, yeah. hey, thanks again for creatively collaborating for Theopoetics with me today. Uh, <laughs> it. Take care and uh, yeah, peace to you. Great. Thank you. Take care. Hey, that was awesome. Thanks for listening to the first episode of the Theopoetics podcast. If you like what you heard, you can log on to iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform and give us a rating. You can also keep up with us on social media at at TheopoeticsCast or tweet at me at at TD Burnett. And don't forget to check out our sponsors, ARC, at artsreligionculture.org. Once again, I'm your host, Tim Burnett. Love wisdom and make peace, everyone.